good thing it is to celebrate uh, baptisms together. I really could do that every week. It's so good for us as a church to be reminded about why we gather, and it's, it makes for a really good celebration as well. Well, I, uh, I'm not usually the guy that gets invited to really nice celebrations, and I'll tell you why. is because I am a chimpanzee who will embarrass himself in public if I go to nice places. So I don't generally get invited to the kind of hoity-toity parties, but there was one occasion where I was invited to something pretty special. Uh, it was a, a, a business guy in the area who works with different Christian ministries and uh, loves what God's doing here. And so he invited a group of pastors from the area to get together, to pray together, to just enjoy a meal together, encourage one another. Wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, and I got invited uh, to go along with everyone. And I was honored to be asked, so I, of course, said yes. But that's because I didn't realize how nice of a, an event this was going to be. So I show up, and it was in this gated community. Uh, I mean, it, it looked like it was in like a, a fortress almost, you know. And they had this uh, beautiful building. It was like a, I think almost like a country club. Uh, and I knew at that point, oh, this is, this is made for real pastors, not guys like me who eat McDonald's in my car in the afternoon. So I got invited inside, and inside this beautiful artwork on the walls, there's ornate sculptures, uh, and the food looks like it's been prepared by a celebrity chef. And at this point, I'm really like, okay, close your mouth, don't talk, just do what you're told. And I, I almost felt like, you know that scene in Titanic where Jack is inv- invited up from steerage? And they have to explain to him how to use every spoon and fork. That's, that's how I felt. And I just found myself wondering as the night went on in this, this wonderful experience, is this really, was this invite really for me? Uh, is this something that's for me? All these wonderful things, all these nice things, is it, is it really for me? Maybe they got the invite to the wrong place. Well, I think sometimes that's how people think about the Easter story, about the resurrection. They ask this question, is this for me? Is this story for me? Maybe people think that the resurrection story, the story of Jesus and the message of Jesus, it's for those who have everything together, who are good people, moral people, religious people. Maybe they think that it's for people who are more accomplished or who think really deeply about life and spiritual things. Maybe it's for people who understand Jesus already. Maybe it's for people who can easily believe difficult things. Who is the resurrection really for? Is it for everybody or is it for somebody? Is it for everybody who would come or is it for somebody who's ready for it? I think in some strange way it's both. The resurrection is for everybody and for somebody and that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to dig into the story of the resurrection from Mark's gospel and I want to look at a few things that Mark teaches us about the resurrection. Things that I think are so important for anyone who would want to understand Jesus and his message to know. So this is taken from Mark's gospel right at the end. It'll be on the screens for us to read together. This is Mark 16 and the account of Jesus' resurrection there. Told this, that when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, just a quick explanation. This is uh, Mary, the mother of James, is actually Jesus' mother. Uh, Mary Magdalene, one of his disciples, and Salome would have been the mother of James and John. And they are going because Jesus' body had to be taken from the cross very quickly uh, because the Sabbath was coming. So the, the Jewish people could not touch a dead body on Sabbath. So he had been put in his tomb before they could go through the burial rituals. And so these women are going now expecting to find that body 
to be able to finally anoint him. So their hearts have been aching, they've been longing to be able to give Jesus a proper burial. But this is what they find. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. There's two things that I see here that I think help us understand what the resurrection is really about and who it's for. I think that this tells us that the resurrection is for failures and it's for the fearful. The resurrection is for the failures and it's for the fearful. Let me explain what I mean by the failures. Uh, when I was about 12 years old, the uh, James Cameron movie Titanic came out, and I was really into it, probably to an unhealthy level. I read everything about the Titanic, fascinated by it, um, and uh, I just got into every little detail, like where it had started, who built it, what happened on the ship, on the traveling, and the one thing that I always remember about the story is this phrase that everybody had said about the Titanic before it set off. Because even before it hit that iceberg, this was a famous ship. Because it was said of this ship, God himself cannot sink this ship. That was in all the newspapers. It was this new kind of feat of engineering with these watertight decks and holds in the bottom. And so they said, God himself could not sink this ship. And of course, we know that that was a Titanic failure. And God did sink that ship. The reason I tell you that story is that there is someone in the Bible who had that same level of confidence in himself. He might have said, no one can sink this ship. Maybe he even would have said, God himself cannot sink this ship. Because he said on Jesus' last night to the man who was God in the flesh, I will never leave you. Nothing can convince me. Even as Jesus is telling him that he will fail him. This, of course, is the well-known guy from the Bible, Simon Peter. The guy whose name we just had read at the story of the resurrection. If you don't know much about Simon Peter, let me give you the synopsis of this disciple's life. He was probably the most well-known disciple because he was known for opening his mouth a little too quickly. He would be the guy that says whatever he thought, for better or for worse. He was a fisherman, and so he hadn't had much education or schooling, and yet he was invited to be a part of Jesus' disciples. An interesting fact is that Peter was actually the oldest of Jesus' disciples. We know he was the only one of them that was over 20 years old. And so he was supposed to be probably the most mature of them, the guy that Jesus trusted. He was the guy that Jesus says, you're my rock, Peter. He was the guy that was invited into the inner ring of disciples. Jesus had 12 disciples, but he took three of them to the most important things that he did. James, John, and Simon Peter. They were there when he raised a dead girl. They were there when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and he shone like the sun. All of Jesus' biggest moments, Simon Peter, James, and John were there. And Simon Peter was the one that loved that spot the most. And at the Last Supper, Jesus reveals to this devoted follower, this one who probably thought he was the best of the best, that he was going to betray him. He was going to fail him. This is what he says in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you 
that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you even know me. Peter was unconvinced. There's no way. There's no way I would do something like that to Jesus. Here it is, Simon Peter saying, nothing can sink this ship. And yet, probably a handful of hours after that very conversation, here's what we read about in the courtyard outside of Jesus' trial. Luke 22, 59 through 62, it says, after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And then in probably in what is some of the most painful lines of scripture in the Bible, this is what we're told in verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Do you know what was happening to Jesus as he turned and looked? He was being beaten by temple guards. Right there, in the most painful moment of his life, he turned and his best friend denied even knowing him. Can you imagine how it was to be Peter, to have Jesus look right in your eyes as you denied that? Painful. And so we're told, Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Because Simon Peter discovered that night that he was a failure. He discovered that he was not who he thought he was. He wasn't the man that would go to death with Jesus. He's not the man who would go to trial with Jesus. He's the man who would deny even knowing him. Even as he sees him beaten, mocked, slandered, and eventually executed. Simon Peter filled Jesus and he filled himself. Remember, this is, Jesus had warned him about this, but this was his own standard that he'd set. He said, no, I know who I am better than you, Jesus, and I will not do this. And he'd filled himself as well as Jesus. And I think in that sense, we can all relate to him a little bit. We can all see in Peter shadows of ourselves. Because we all like to think that we know who we really are and how we would react in the worst situations in our, of our life, but the truth is that some of the deepest shame that we feel comes from not living up to who we think we ought to be. That we can't even live up to our vision of ourselves, never mind God's vision for us. You know, I did a quick research on the, this this week. Did you know that over 70% of Americans who articulate their regret say that it comes from this sense of not being who they ought to be? of people don't regret the things they have done. They regret that they haven't become what they know they should be. This is what Peter felt. Peter felt like someone who had failed the most important person in his life. That the thing he wanted to do most in his life, he couldn't do. And yet, my friends, whose name is it that the angel chooses to speak at the tomb of Jesus? Peter. Mark 16, 7 says, Go tell the disciples and that coward who totally betrayed me. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Do you know that Peter was a a term of endearment from Jesus? His name wasn't Peter, his name was Simon. He was called Simon Peter because Jesus said, I'm gonna call you Peter, Petros in Greek, You're going to be my rock. You're going to be my guy. 
So it was this nickname that he'd given to him. So he became known as Simon Peter. And which name does Jesus choose to have the angel say at the tomb? Don't just call him Simon. Call him my rock. Call him my guy. Tell Peter I want to see him. Jesus has an angel call him by name. Why would Jesus want to see the man who had denied him and failed him? Because the resurrection is for failures. That's who the invite goes out to. The people who need to see Jesus the most are the ones that have failed Jesus. And Jesus is delighted to invite them to come and be the first to see. Christ wants to embrace those who've fallen short, who have made terrible mistakes, who have found themselves on the other side of decisions that they can't change or undo. And that's all of us. Every one of us, without exception, knows what it feels like to have failed. Isaiah 53 reminds us of this. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Every single one of us has decided to be the captain of our own destiny, lord of our own life, and we've charred our own cost, and often we feel regret of not being able to reach the destination that we want to hit. And yet, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why the resurrection is an invitation for failures, because it is the remedy for failures. The Bible calls us sheep because we've all scuttled off in our own way from the one who loves us, who cares for us, who wants to protect us. And the resurrection is the invitation for every wayward sheep to come back to the shepherd who loves them, who cares for them, who cannot be changed or edited by our failures. Jesus was the same before Peter betrayed him and he was the same after. His failure had no effect on Jesus and how he felt about him. There's this horrible notion out there, I think, that God helps those who help themselves, that we've got to put the work in, and when we do, Jesus is kind of impressed enough to say, okay, you seem serious about this. I'll, I'll grant you some grace and some help. Friends, that's one of the most despicable lies that have ever been told about who God is. It's the opposite of who God is. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who don't want to help themselves. God helps those who need help. Because his love for people is not based on people, it's based on him. That's who he is. See, Peter was so crushed by his failure because he thought, well, Jesus is interested in me because I can, I can meet the standard because I can go with him the distance. And so when he didn't make that distance, he thought his entire relationship had fallen apart. Everything that he'd built his life around had fallen apart, but he'd missed the point. Christ's loyalty to Peter had nothing to do with Peter. It was Christ's righteousness. It was Christ's choosing of Peter that held him fast, even throughout failure. When God makes a decision to love someone, he doesn't change his mind. Fleming Rutledge, a wonderful pastor, said this, you can't choose to be everything you want to be. But Jesus has already chosen for you a life of flourishing with him, with his people. And that's what our faith is. It is the movement towards the one who on our behalf has made the choice to love us. Consider this from, from Luke 22. When, he, when Jesus warns him he's gonna betray him, before we even get to 
Peter's proclamation that, oh, this will never happen, it'll never happen. When Jesus is warning him, what Jesus says is, I know this is gonna happen, but listen to me, I've prayed for you because I want you back. Because I don't want you to run away. Jesus was trying to throw him the life rope of saying, Peter, don't let the failure change how you see me. Don't let that failure make you forget who I am and why I've come. I haven't come for the healthy, I've come for the sick. I haven't come for the successful, I've come for the failures. Jesus told Peter, I know you better than you know yourself, and the most broken parts about you don't repulse me, they don't deter me, and in fact, I will endure your betrayal so that I can transform you and I can redeem you and I can make you mine. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He's looked into the deepest parts of your heart. He's looked into your future, your past, your present, and he has decided to go to the cross for you. And what we've got to understand is that the message of Christ is for failures. It's for broken people who need help. And so our failures shouldn't deter us from going to the empty tomb. They should qualify us. But the resurrection is also for the fearful. It's for the fearful. I want to throw up a few uh, phobias on the screen. It's always fun to get some interaction on Easter morning. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw a phobia on the screen. We'll start easy. I want you to tell me what this phobia means, okay? So the first one is aerophobia, which is the fear of flying. Flying, okay. And then my fear, arachnophobia. Anybody else arachnophobic? Yeah, spiders, horrible. Burn them all. Do you remember that movie that came out, Arachnophobia, like in the 90s? It was traumatizing to me as a child. I, maybe I liked them before then, I don't know. Okay, agoraphobia is the fear of crowded spaces. Does someone have agoraphobia in here? They're like, yep, that's mine. I know that one. Okay, this is where it's going to get really difficult. I did not know these before uh, I looked into them. Aphidiophobia. I'll give you a clue. It's a, it's a popular fear. It's a fear of a certain kind of animal. It is not birds, but that's good because birds, that's, that sounds like birds, isn't it? No, it's a fear of snakes. Fear of snakes. A phidiophobia. Why they wouldn't just call it snakeophobia? I don't know. Maybe they needed to impress some college professor. Um, okay, last one trypanophobia. Any guesses on trypanophobia? I'll give you another clue. This one is to do with uh, medicine. Needles. That's right. It's a fear of injections. Once again, why they need to call it that, I don't know. But uh, everybody has some kind of fear, don't they? Like we can go through this list, and a lot of those we know, we've heard, but everybody has something in their life, some kind of fear that they can articulate. Fear of the future, fear of abandonment, fear of failure. Fear is a natural part of all of our lives. Every human being who has ever lived has felt what it's like to be afraid. And these people who meet Jesus on Resurrection Sunday are people who have just lived through the weekend of all of their worst fears. Terrified. And even on the morning, it's still with them. Because if we read the account in Mark 16, this is one of my favorite accounts because of how it ends. This is what it says in Mark 16, 8 says that when they hear this announcement, they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They were afraid. 
You'll notice in a lot of Bibles, there's a little note there because Mark's gospel, in the earliest manuscripts we have, that's where it ends. And you can tell, a lot of scholars think that at some point in the centuries that followed, people were like, well, that's not a good ending. We better put some other stuff in because we know there was more than that. But I think that Mark ended his gospel there on purpose. He wanted to leave us with a sense that the resurrection is for people who are afraid. It's for fearful people. Think about it. Who does the angel appear to? Who does Jesus want to know first about his resurrection? Is it the most devoted, faithful followers who are like, yes, we were waiting for this, we knew about this? No, it was for trembling women, his own mother who was afraid. His disciples who felt that loss, he wanted them to know, no, I've come for you. I know you're afraid, and this is for you. That's Mark's point when he tells us this story. Jesus rose to confront the fears that are around us, the fears that, of what's within us, and then the fears of what's above us. If I was asked you today, why, why are we afraid? A lot of people would say, well, I've been hurt by people before. Or I've, I've had painful things happen to me. I've gone through disease or loss. Uh, I'm afraid because I've, there's been times where I haven't been accepted. I'm afraid that I won't be accepted again. I'll be rejected by people. I'm afraid of difficult circumstances. I'm afraid of losing control of the different parts of my life. The good news is that the risen Jesus is an answer to all those fears. That's why he rose. Because to know the risen Christ is to know that you are accepted by God apart from anything that you will ever do. It's to know that he has seen your hurt and has given what is most precious to him for your healing. It is to know that death cannot destroy you because it didn't destroy him. It's to, it's to know that your failure can be rewritten like Peter's was. It's to know that God's hands always do something better with your life than yours do. The risen Christ is trying to say to all of us, as the angel said to those women, don't be alarmed, don't be afraid. See the one who has risen for you. Jesus had been trying to teach them this their whole life. I want to just tell just a couple of quick stories that help us understand the God who comes to deal with the fears around us, within us, and above us. First story is from Mark 4. There's a story where the disciples are on the lake, they're in a boat, there's waves crashing in around them, they think that they're going to die, and they cry out to Jesus, don't you care about us? Don't you see us? Don't you see what's happening around us, all the different things? We're going to drown here. And Jesus simply gets up and says, peace be still, and the entire lake goes silent. We're told in Mark 4, 41, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This was Jesus saying to them, I I know what's going on around you. All you have to do is ask me. All you have to do is ask me. But it's not just what was around them that they were afraid of. They were afraid of what was within us. So many accounts in scripture when God meets someone, they fall on their knee and they're afraid because they know what's inside of them. And they know to have this in front of a holy, perfect God is bad news for me. And yet again and again in scripture, God takes broken, failed people and says, you don't need to be afraid of what's within you. I can see it and I still want you. I'm gonna give myself for you. In Revelation 1, John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, he comes face to face with the risen Jesus and he drops on his knees because he can't believe who it is that he's looking at and he's terrified about what's within him. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. 
I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is saying, remember, remember who I am? I'm the guy that was dead and came back to life, John. That means you don't need to be afraid of what's within you anymore because I've seen it, I've faced it, and I love you. Last thing that we're afraid of is what's above us. And fear doesn't always look like trembling, does it? Sometimes when we're afraid, it looks like anger. It looks like indifference. Sometimes it looks like making fun to try and cover that sense in us that we are afraid of something. And the resurrection itself reveals a God who is so powerful that we attempted to be afraid of him. We'd like to keep the idea of the resurrection out of our minds because it's so completely earth-shattering, but it's frightening. It's disruptive. It's all-consuming because it validates everything that Jesus ever said. If he rose from the grave, if that's true, if that's happened, he really was God, and that means that every word that ever left his mouth should matter to us. And that can upset our whole order of life. But what does the angel say to them? He says, you seek Jesus. What he's saying to them is, I know what you really want. I know what you're really looking for. In the midst of your fear and your loss and your pain and your brokenness, what you're looking for is Jesus. And you won't find him in an empty tomb. Because he's risen for you. He's waiting for you to come to him because of his great love for you. Essentially, that angel is saying, Jesus is not an obstruction to your freedom. He's not in the way of your joy. He's the gateway to all of those things. What you're really looking for in the midst of your fear is Jesus. There's a father who loves you. All of us have failed. All of us have been fearful. And so what we need to finally understand is the resurrection is for us. It's for us. Luke gives us the ending of this story. He tells us in Luke 24, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the Mary, the mother of James, those women who had been at the tomb, they run back and they tell the disciples. The other women who were with them told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them, except for one of them. Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Why did he run? Because he had his name. Because when those women got back, they said, Jesus wants to see you, Peter. Can you imagine what that did in Peter? A walk in his heart, oh my gosh, it's not over for me. He still wants me? Even after he looked at me in that courtyard and saw what I did to him, he still, he still wants to see me? And so Peter gets up and he runs to the tomb as fast as he can, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what, he had, what had happened. See, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. And to give you an idea of this, the distance would be probably close to, uh, if, if you left church and you had to run down to 25 to Red Oak Nature Center. Not crazy far because he was within Jerusalem. He was running just outside the city walls. However, that's a run I would not be excited to make. But Peter runs the whole distance because he knows at the other end of that, he's gonna get to see someone who's overcome his failure, who's overcome his fear. And what we're told in Luke 24 and 1 Corinthians 15 in these kind of, if you don't look, you'll miss it moments, is that Jesus appeared to Simon on that first resurrection Sunday. He didn't just say, I want to see him. He, he, he did see him. We don't know what happened in that conversation. I would love to know what that conversation was about. 
how awkward it was and painful it was and joyful it was. But it's enough for us to know that Jesus wanted to see that man and that he loved that man, no matter what that man had done. A man who wept bitterly in a courtyard now rejoiced because the man he had betrayed had called his name personally. Isaiah 43, 1 says, Now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I've redeemed you. I've called you by name, and you are mine. A Jew like Peter would have known that verse, and I'm certain it took on new meaning for him that day when he heard the Lord call his name. I've redeemed you, Peter. And the good news for us is that as far away as we live from that event, the same is still true for us. He calls our name, and we can run to that empty tomb. The question is, will we? Will we run when he calls our name? We run to so many things, don't we? We run to relationships, to work, to money, to busyness, to food, to politics, money. Why would we not run to him? Every single one of those things that I've just mentioned don't even whisper what the resurrection provides for us in fullness. Too often we hold back when we should run and we tell ourselves we'll get around to it, we'll wait for him to come to us. But if you have really heard your name and you have seen that empty tomb, you would run to it with everything that you have. Why would you wait when you know the most important person in all of creation has asked for you by name? I just want to close by considering how all this changed Simon Peter. He wrote a letter later as the church grew and the story of Jesus' resurrection multiplied. It's in our New Testament called First Peter. He wrote this to the churches. And in that letter, he writes this, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. It sounds like the words of a man who wished he'd listened when Jesus had said, you're gonna fill me. He's learned now. Listen to what he says because he knows you better than you know you. And then he says, my favorite, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. No one knew better what it meant to be cared for by Jesus than Peter. Because in some ways, Peter should be the most tragic example of why Jesus shouldn't love us. And yet, who does Jesus love? Peter. Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. The resurrection is for everyone, and it's for someone. It's for everyone because this invitation has been given by Christ to anyone who would come and run to his tomb. But it's for somebody because just like Peter, he's called your name from that tomb. He has called your name personally. The resurrection isn't just some net that Jesus has cast out for humanity. It is a personal invitation to anyone who has failed, who is afraid, and who needs his grace. He's called your name today. And he says to you, I've redeemed you. Fear not. We are all either running towards the tomb or we are running away from it. Which one will you be? Will you run towards or will you run away? 
We celebrate the risen Christ today. And if you would want to know him, all you need to do is to believe in your heart, to confess with your mouth, and he would be glad, he would be delighted, he would be overjoyed to make himself yours and to give himself to you. He's waiting at that empty tomb for anyone who would run towards him. It's why we celebrate baptism. It's why you have the opportunity to be baptized right now if you want to. So I'm gonna close, I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna worship again together as a church, this risen Christ who has loved us, who has given himself for us. And I just invite you to reflect in your heart. If the next step of running towards the empty tomb for you is to be baptized, go out to the lobby. I'd love to chat with you. We'll do it right now. If the next step for you is to just get connected and remind you to find one of those cards, click on it. We don't do that just to busy our time as a church. We do it because we want to bring people to the empty tomb so they can know him. Maybe the next step for you is to just go home today to pray in the quietness and to remind yourself of the one who doesn't ask you to be somebody but who was himself somebody for you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this chance to worship together, to celebrate your risen son together. He is beautiful, he is good, he is wonderful. Praise God that even though we have been failures, even though we have been fearful, he comes to us and calls us by name to come and know him. God, I pray in this place today, whatever our story, wherever we're coming from, wherever we're going, Father, we would not forget that you have been somebody for us, that you have been everything for us. And so, God, we come to you, that we might know you, that we might love you, and we might follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to celebrate together. Thank you so much for joining. It's been good for my heart to be with my church family, to remember this for myself. So. I really appreciate you coming and worshiping with us. Again, if, if you're new here, make sure you pick up a gift from our welcome desk that we've got for you. Uh, I would love to meet you and hear your story. Uh, and would love to invite you to join us again next week at 10 a.m. or to any of our services, any of our events, any of our groups. But now, let me leave you with this morning's benediction. Would you pray this with me? May we go in the name of the God who has called our name. And even amidst our betrayal, our failures, our fears, has loved us and redeemed us. May we go in his name, running to his empty tomb, that we might know him and love him better. It's in his name that we go. Amen.